We're continuing our series on small books, big message. I appreciate our scripture readers in this series that they're reading you the full letters, giving you the experience that the churches of the early church would have had 2,000 years ago when messengers would have shown up with a letter to be read to the congregation so that they would know what it is that these early church fathers and leaders, ministers, apostles, and evangelists wanted them to hear. I picked these books not based on their content, but on their word count. And so when I first came up with this idea uh, a month or so ago, and I put them on the calendar, uh, I hadn't read through all of them entirely. So this week I sat down and I read uh, the book of Jude, which we're going to be in today. And I thought, I don't want to preach on that. This is about uh, confronting and exposing immorality in our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about dealing with the hard stuff, and it's a tough topic. And so as I get into it, and I'm like, man, I, this isn't what I wanted to do. Philemon last week was great. It was about freedom. It was about liberation. It was about how God turns the tables of slave and master upside down and leaves two men as brothers. Uh, and it's like, man, give me Philemon again. But, but Jude is going to have some tough conversations and have them in a short number of words. In fact, as I talk about Jude today, I will use significantly more words than he does, and I don't know if that tells you something about him or something about me, but that's what you're going to get. And I got into Jude's letter and, and had some... I, I wasn't excited about the content. And here's how Jude's letter begins after his greetings. In verse 3, he says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And so Jude begins by saying, I don't want to be writing this letter. And if, if I don't want to be writing, preaching this sermon and Jude doesn't want to be writing this letter, I think that that's a pretty good place for us to start this journey and conversation together, right? Because Jude would rather be, in this moment, talking about the salvation we receive in Jesus Christ. Jude would rather be talking about how as a result of Jesus' obedience to God and his death on the cross on our behalf, that we're set free and that we're forgiven of our sins. But Jude says, but I can't write that letter right now. You see, I've got some other things that I need to talk about today. I've got to talk about some dangers that have crept into the church. And I thought, if Jude doesn't want to write about it and I don't want to preach about it, we'll start there. And so here's the first thing that you need to get. I, I actually believe that this short book of Jude is written in such a way that it offers us a way of dealing with immorality in the church today in its short verses. And the first thing you need to know, if you're going to do Christianity with, according to the way of Jude, the first thing you need to know is that you have to be someone who is more excited about salvation than talking about immorality in other people. Now, does that mean we don't talk about immorality in other people? No. But if at any point you find that you're more excited about talking about other people's sins then you are talking about the Jesus who forgave them. You're not living your faith out according to the way of Jude. He gives us this way of, uh, of desiring to, to focus more on salvation while knowing that sometimes we've got to step back and talk about the dangerous, talk about the urgent. 
You know, the other thing before we, we really get started is, um, is I want to talk a little bit about Jude's name. Several people this week, knowing that Jude was coming up this week, asked me if we would sing the song, Hey Jude, and I'm just singing it so it's stuck in your head and not just mine. Um, and we're not, other than that little intro bar, for, for a reason, and the reason is his name isn't Jude. This is just a fun fact. Um, his name is the exact same as Judah in Greek, and Judas in Greek, and Jude in Greek are all uh, Judas, all of them. Uh, and, and you might wonder, why is it that they changed his name to be Jude as the second to last book of the Bible and the author? And I think that it might have something to do, if you look up Jude on Wikipedia today, the first thing that it says is not uh, probably the brother of Jesus, which is probably true. This is probably one of Jesus' younger brothers. Uh, he claims in the text to be the brother of James, probably because he doesn't consider his rank to be established by his connectedness to Jesus' brother, but his servanthood to Jesus. But he is also brother to James, the brother of Jesus. That's not the first thing that Wikipedia says. The first thing that Wikipedia says isn't uh, Jude, uh, the one who wrote a book of the Bible. The first thing it says is this, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. When you share a name with the guy who betrayed Jesus, it's hard to not have that dirtiness of that public relations rub off on you a little bit. And so very early in Christianity, uh, when they said, okay, here's the book of Judas, everyone would say, that Judas? And they would have to go, no, not that Judas. It's the other one that's the brother of James and probably the brother of Jesus. And, 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 and so they eventually just said, let's just call him Jude. And everyone would be like, oh, it's a different guy. But interestingly, if Jude were here today and we were to ask him in, in ignoring the complexity of, of things, we'll let Google Translate sort it out. Uh, but if we asked him, what is your name? He would say, my name is Judas, the same as the name of the largest tribe in Israel, Judah. It's all the same name, but we kind of lose some of that in, in translation. Uh, for simplicity's sake, I'm still going to refer to him as Jude today, but that's why I won't sing the song. There you go. Way more information, but I thought it was interesting, and maybe you will too. Going on in the text, Jude continues, and he keeps writing about this threat that's come up in the early church. He says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And here's the first thing you need to know. Jude is talking about a church problem. He's not talking about a Roman problem. He's not talking about a Greek problem. He's not talking about an out there in the marketplace problem. This is an in the church problem. There are some who have infiltrated you and are among you, and here's what they've done. They have come in and are ungodly. They're perverting the grace of God into a freedom uh, to be sexually immoral, to do all kinds of things that God does not want them doing with their bodies. They're doing with their bodies. And not only that, they're denying that Jesus is our sovereign, our king, our ruler, and our Lord. They're denying that Jesus is in charge. And when you think about what that looks like today, N.T. Wright in talking about this text says, if you look at the church today and you want to know what these people look like, here's what you need to know. The first group is anyone who stands in front of the church today and declares, 
God loves everyone exactly as they are. Everyone must stay exactly as they are, doing all the things they want to do, because God is so full of generosity that obviously he wants them to do just that. These are the dangerous ones in the church today. And it feels that's, that's such a virtue of the world that we live in and the waters that we swim in. Be your best self. Be your truest self. Don't let anyone tell you that you need to change. Here's the problem. Is that when God comes into your life, which one of us is living such a life that God looks at us as his children and says, you've nailed it, you're perfect already, change nothing? No. Jesus was there, and he died on the cross to save us from all the stuff that's broken in our hearts and in our lives and in our, our, ourselves so that the Spirit can move us to where God wants us to go, that we can become disciples of Jesus and transformed by Jesus, and that the Spirit can do its work in us. So if someone stands up and says, listen, in Jesus Christ, don't change your perfect, that's not the gospel. If it says, follow your desires, not what God desires, that's not the gospel. That's someone who is bought into a perversion of grace that leads to a perversion of myself, choosing my desires and not God's desires for me to live a holy and good life. And the second form of evil that has crept into the church that he exposes is those who say that Jesus is not ruler and Lord. In the world we live in today, that's the people who say, uh, listen, Jesus is one path to God, but he's not the only path. I mean, Jesus isn't, Jesus is a big deal, but he's not everything. Jesus is good. He was a great man, a great teacher. He has a great way of living. But, but are you trying to tell me that he's the only way to get to God? He is the only way. That is the claim that he makes that is confirmed on the cross when he gets out of the grave. No one else can do that. And until someone else lives a perfect life and dies to save you from your sins and then doesn't stay dead, he gets to claim that he's the way to God. And when people stand up in the church and say that that's not true, we have a responsibility as Christians to push back against that. Now, if someone in the world says that they think there's other ways to get to God, are we surprised? No. no. That's what makes them the world and us the church. It shouldn't be a scandal to us that people that don't believe in Jesus don't believe in Jesus. It's baked into the definition. Right. But we need to, when it creeps into the church, do what Jude does and call it out as a danger to the entire kingdom of God and the community of faith and the body of Jesus. And suddenly, when you understand what it is that Jude is worried about, you realize that this book is incredibly relevant and contemporary to our world. And yet it's filled with ancient illustrations. Some of them are biblical. Some of them are from Jewish history and mythology. Uh, so some of them are true and some are really, and I say true, some of them are historical references and some of them are just part of Jewish's, Jews, the Jewish history, the Hebrewic history that anchors Jude's world. And he pulls from all of those. And we don't need to get in there and say, well, since Jude mentioned them, it's clearly a historical event. What we need to do is say Jude is using the stories that he and his community are familiar with to teach them something from the past about the present. Right. 
And so the first thing is this. There's a set of stories uh, about people who rebelled against God's way. It tells about when God delivered the people from Israel, he destroyed those who rebelled against him. It talks about how when angels got out of line and rebelled, he put them in chains in darkness until judgment. And you might be thinking, I'm not very familiar with that story. Well, that's not part of our text. That's part of Israel's kind of stories of their past and understanding the spirit world. But he's saying, hey, do you know how that story about where angels rebelled against God and got out of order? God punished them, right? Yes, he did. And he, they understand the point that's being made. And then he pulls one that we're much more familiar with. Uh, remember when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they lived in sexual immorality and perversion. And those are Jude's words. Jude says, listen, in, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Those cities were destroyed by flame and, and, and were brought to their destruction because of their choosing of immorality. And, and Jude says, don't forget these stories. Because immorality can creep into the church, and we need these stories to remind us that rebellion against God is never tolerated. It is always resisted by God and His people. And that must continue to be true in this and every generation. Jude's point in anchoring it all the way back to the Genesis text of the beginning is to tell them, this isn't new. Sexual immorality in the midst of God's people is not a new challenge, which is something that the church today needs to hear too. We tend to think, boy, we're the first group of followers of God that have ever had to deal with sexual immorality. What are we going to do? We're going to do the same thing the people of God have been doing since the beginning. We're going to label immorality in the community of those who are trying to follow God as immorality and try and hold each other to better standards and choose God's way and not our way. It's not new. The only things that are new when it comes to sexual immorality and licentiousness in our living is how we describe it and the mediums and technologies that we use to spread it. That's changed, but the, the immorality and the pursuit of our desires over God's desire for us is not new. He continues, and he talks in, in verse 8, In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. There is, in this passage, another one of these stories that we kind of go, we hear it and we go, wait, what? Michael, Satan, and Moses, what's this story? It's kind of a, a Jewish interpretation of a passage from Zechariah, and he's, he's expounding on it, he's using it as an example. And we don't have to get into that event to understand this, when people start to reject spiritual authority in their lives, the next thing they do is they start rejecting human authority in their lives. And, and we resist power structures in our world today, but the truth is that God has put in our lives some people who have the authority to, to hold us accountable. Honor your mother and father, uh, shepherds who guide the flock, 
spouses that honor and recognize each other's uh, ability and, and responsibility in the home and that, that love each other as Christ loved the church and that serve one another. These things are, are built into the world that God has created. God is not a God of ultimate uh, anarchy, but a God of order. And order involves reacting to authority. And when we have people reject spiritual authority, the next thing they do is they reject human authority and they get to this place of you, you God, can't tell me what to do. You spirit beings can't tell me what to do. You person in the world can't tell me what to do. I do what I want. And the next step after that is almost always a throwing off of all restraint against immorality. And it becomes a pursuit of what feels good in the short term and not what God desires in the eternal long term. And we throw off what God has placed upon us as, as responsible and good living under him and under one another in different ways. Once you throw off restraint, you start to do whatever to feels good. And so we've come to a place in our world today, and I think it's a tragedy in our world today, that we think that sexual immorality is a modern invention. Because our, our belief that anytime we throw off the sexual restraints of the past or the rules of the past, and not just in sexuality, but in anything, when we kind of come up with this realization that what used to be frowned upon is now permissible, we think that we're doing so in the name of progress. And that becomes a dangerous thing. Because when we associate immorality with progress, uh, we get to a place that, that we're treating each other in non-human ways and acting like we're more human while we do so. We claim that we're living in, in ways that, that are moving forward in our evolution, while in reality we're really just moving backwards to the oldest forms of dehumanizing ourselves and one another. And don't just hear me say today that, that the only way this happens in the people of God is in sexual immoral, immorality and sexually immoral ways. When somebody decides that it's not wrong to drink anymore because they've kind of worked this out for themselves and soon they're getting drunk all the time and they say, I've got permission, so this is beneficial for me, you're living out of bounds here. When someone gets to a place uh, where they go from making a really good amount of money in their lives to suddenly beginning to take advantage of others to make extra money, and they let greed begin to consume themselves and pursue that, you've done the same thing. You're letting your desires, because of your freedom and grace, you feel like you're free to go do that. And yet God does not desire you do that. And it's easy for me to stand up here, I mean, it's not easy, but you might think that it's easy for me to stand up here and to, to talk to you about sexual immorality in the church and in the world. But the reality is that the greatest uh, examples of sexual immorality, of harassment, of abuse, of child abuse that have happened in Christianity in the past 10 and 20 years have happened at the hands of people who've stood on stages like this one. And we're so worried about the world and we forget to worry about what's going on in the church. And Jude wants us to be passionate about standing up to all these forms of immorality that come up in the church. And so we've got teens that are being raised in, in Christian families and churches today that are coming up that, and young adults that think that it's okay to just try marriage on for a season and move in and live with one another for a season. And, and 
God does not desire that. Now, in the short term, I desire that, and it feels good, and, and maybe it feels safer to me to do that than to make a lifelong commitment to marriage. And so I think, man, I'm just going to do this because it, it feels good to me, and God wants me to be happy. I don't need to change. That's the perversion. But we also need to realize that you know, sometimes it's easy for me to get grumpy old man up here, right? Teens these days. But the other side of that, is that the reason teens and young adults have lost faith in the institution of marriage is because they grew up watching marriages that weren't faithful. And we see why Jude is so worried that when we let go of the, the obedience that God desires from us and we instead pursue this kind of this freedom for immorality and we claim it is good, that it can become contagious that it can start to work its way through the whole, the whole flock and it can work its, work its way through the whole kingdom. And so we have to be willing at times to not only proclaim salvation, which is beautiful and what we desire the most, but to step aside and say, listen, we've got to have some honest conversations, brothers and sisters. We've got to talk about immorality when it's in the church and we've got to expose it and push against it. And he goes into a second set of stories that we're not going to get into in any, any kind of deep way. But the second set of stories are people who have led others astray in their rebellion. We always think about Cain the murderer, but Cain goes and builds a village in a city that becomes more evil and violent than anything he had ever done. Balaam, the false prophet, tries to seduce Israel away from obedience to God. Korah led a rebellion against Moses in the wilderness. When we allow immorality to fester unchallenged, it becomes contagious even among the people of God. And so the way of Jude says you can't just let it go. In the body, it has to be confronted. And he describes how awful these people are by using illustrations of things that promise goodness and deliver nothing or worse. When you're a farmer and you see huge clouds rolling in, you begin to be grateful and thankful already because the rain is going to come. The clouds promise it. And then they blow past to give rain to another field, not delivering to yours. He talks about shepherds that only feed themselves while starving their sheep. He talks about trees in the fall when they should be full of fruit and well anchored and watered, and yet these trees produce no fruit and have no roots to anchor them. He's warning about Christians who aren't fruitful in their ministries and in their lives and aren't rooted in their, their foundation of faith. He says, listen, these are the ones who are dangerous in the church. And the text moves on to promise judgment coming for those uh, who deal with these problems, those who grumble and complain about others' faults, those who follow their evil desires, those who are arrogant, and those who put other people down to lift themselves up. And Jude says, listen, the apostles told us people like this would come, but now they're here. Now here's, he's, he's exposed it all. He's pulled the covers off and he said, we've got to talk about the tough stuff and we've got to confront the evil desires and we've got to deal with the stuff that's creeping in and has the potential to become uh, contagious in the community of believers. We can't let these things go unexposed. But you, dear friends, you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. 
Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Jude can't help it. He's letting a little bit of salvation creep in here, isn't he? He can't help it. Because there's good news in the love of God. There's good news in building ourselves up in faith. There's good news in the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives this incredible instruction because, man, Jude's been just, he's just been hammering us. He's been hammering us with the history. He's been hammering us with rebellion. He's been hammering us with, with, with exposing our own wounds and our own things we don't like about ourselves and we wish were different. And he's exposing it and it's raw. And then he says this. He's giving us instructions on how to, to deal with one another when immorality comes into the church. And it is this, be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So here's the three things that we've got to get from Jude's way of dealing with immorality in the church. The first one uh, we've talked about kind of already, and maybe this even precedes the three, is that our love for preaching and proclaiming salvation has to be greater than our desire to expose immorality. But we still have to be willing to do the work of having honest and truthful conversations about God's way. But Jude's way is completely with Paul. Jude agrees completely with Paul that Christians should concern themselves with sin and immorality in the church. In the church and among the people of God. Quit worrying so much about the world. God will take care of the world. We get that in 1 Corinthians 6 from Paul's letter where he's talking about a case of immorality in that church in Corinth. And Jude echoes that. This entire letter in every verse is talking about in the church, amongst the brethren, in the body of Christ, with those who are in the spirit. This is a kingdom problem. It's not a world problem. Is there immorality in the world? Yes. Are we surprised? No. Is there immorality in the church? Yes. Are we surprised? We don't like it. We've got to deal with it. It's been here forever. It's going to be here in the future, but we've got to be willing to do the work of, of helping each other out of it. How do we do it? He tells us this. This is the second key from living the Jude way. Jude is not okay just throwing people into the fear and into the fire. It's not enough to go up to people and say, you're going to hell. That's not the Jude way. The Jude way requires mercy in our treatment of others, especially in those who are wavering. Which if you've got someone who's, who's in sexual immorality, if you've got someone who's in, in greed, if you've got someone who's in addiction, they're wavering. And Jude's way of addressing it begins with mercy. And you go to them with mercy. And you go to them with compassion. You're not perfect. We know it. Pancho mentioned in his communion talk today, for every one of us have sinned. And so we go out of a place of mercy and compassion and empathy as we have hard conversations about getting out of the pit. And he talks about grabbing someone out of the fire. And this is key. When you go and snatch someone out of the fire, this is not an attempt for you to step on their mistakes to lift yourself up. This is you going up to them, realizing that like a fireman who's grabbing someone out of the fire, that you're saving their eternal soul by, by saying, get out of here, man. 
Get out of this mess that you're living in. I, I'm snatching you out of this. Is it aggressive? I mean, it sounds aggressive. It's dramatic. But we've got to hold the mercy too, right? But we're snatching them out of the fire with a desire to save them. It's about their eternal safety. And it's not easy. We can't drag people out of their own messes. We wish we could. It'd be easier if I could baptize people just by carrying them into the water and throwing them in and being like, gotcha! But you can't. You have to do the work of getting hot in the fire with them. And even when they say, I like the warmth in here, you've got to do the honest work of, of doing, having the honest conversations about getting them where God wants them to be. And I'm not going to pretend that it's easy, but Jude wants us to know that it's worth doing with mercy. And sometimes he acknowledges with a mix of mercy and fear being honest about what's at stake. Jude believes we cannot ignore immorality in the church and simply proclaim salvation. We have to keep telling the truth to the people who claim to follow it. And so there's three easy ways to deal with hard topics of immorality. None of them are the Jude way. Here's the three easy ways. One, don't talk about it. Two, don't talk about immorality in the church. Go be really, really angry about immorality outside of the church. That's an easy way to deal with this. Because you don't have a relationship with them, and telling them they're sinners is just... And here's the thing. You can go tell the non-believing world that they're not living the way God wants them to. They don't care that you don't like the way they're living. But your brother and sister in Christ hopefully do. And if you've got a relationship with them, that's where you go have the conversation about getting right with God. And you try and snatch them out of the fire with mercy. The other easy way uh, to deal with these hard topics today is to just love everybody and be tolerant of everything. And if you do that, you don't have to have the tough conversations. You just kind of say, you're okay, and I'm not going to tell you otherwise. It's your business, not mine. So, so we can ignore it. Uh, we can uh, just ignore the church and, and confront the world, or we can just tolerate everybody. Those are the three easy ways, but Jude's way is different. Jude's way requires us to go to people, and there's a scale here of people that, that we disagree with. On the one end of the scope of scale of people that we disagree with, there's people who uh, are just different than us, and on the other end are people who disgust us. And the people who disgust us, we tend to think are doing the work of Satan. We tend to think that the people in the world who disgust us are disgusting to God. But guess what? God loves them. And Jesus died for them. And God watched his son die in hopes that those people who are sinners like you and me would come home. And we look at them and we think, man, they're different or they're disgusting the people who disagree with me in the world and who think their things are different to me. That's where we think about them. And when they come home, God hitches up his garment and he runs to those people the same way that he has at different times in our lives run to us. I pray that this church is one of the homes that when the people who we disagree with and who disgust us come home, we are like the prodigal home that runs to them and hugs them and loves them, and welcomes them. 
and then is willing to look at the Jude way of doing things and say, listen, I need you to hold me accountable for my stuff, and I'm going to try and hold you accountable for yours. I can't look down my nose at you because the plank in my eye keeps pulling my face down, right? But we've got to be willing to welcome people in and then have the honest conversations about what God's Word says about what is right, what is wrong, what freedom allows, and what obedience requires. The way of Jude does not require us to tell the world how immoral it is. The way of Jude does require us to welcome people and love all people into the house of the prodigal father and then be willing in the house of the prodigal father to have honest conversations with each other with God's word as our guide and his spirit as the intermediary that gets us through the tough stuff. All of this is done so that we might be able to fulfill what God is working in us, which is the last two verses of Jude. And we're going to end with this. I want to read it, and then in a minute we're going to read it together. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation. But before we do, I want us to all stand and read aloud together these last two verses. And then after these two verses, we'll have an invitation song. And the church proclaims together, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.